everyone, and welcome to the Think Inc. podcast. I'm Susie, owner and director of Think Inc. At Think Inc., we elevate ideas through live events, and here is a showcase of our online live event series, Outside the Box. Today's show is with David Frum. David is a senior editor at The Atlantic. He served as a speechwriter and special assistant to President George W. Bush and a senior advisor to the Rudy Giuliani presidential campaign. He is the author of 10 books, most recently, Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy, and the bestseller, Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. David is someone with much grace, and I am proud to have hosted him on the platform. Today's show is hosted by the brilliant Claire Lehman, who is the founding editor of Colette. I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks so much for joining us, David. I think we might have to start off with what's been happening in America in the last two weeks since the tragic killing of George Floyd by American police. Can you tell us about what's been happening in Washington, D.C. in terms of the protest events there? Well, we have had an extraordinary national and global movement, and I know it's touched probably everyone watching us. I know it's touched people in Australia. And they're both the physical demonstrations that we have watched, and there is also a kind of cultural revolution going on, in some ways for good, in other ways for ill. We've had in the United States the story very much city by city. In some cities like Minneapolis, um, there's been serious violence. Uh, In cities like New York and Los Angeles, there has been looting. But here in Washington, we've had overwhelmingly peaceful protest geared to changing consciousness and to forming a new kind of political argument. And what we've seen, and I think everyone has participated in this, is this an explosion of, of discussion across social media. How do we integrate equality and justice? And how do we bring the past into our present lives? In the United States, that has taken the form of debates over everything from the names of army bases. In Great Britain, you have seen these convulsions over uh, the statues of Winston Churchill and, and other heroes of British history. Even in Belgium, suddenly the statues of King Leopold, who uh, was the imperialist who seized the, what became the Belgian Congo. That th- Those are now daubed with red paint, sometimes knocked down. So it's a, it's a global, physical, and intellectual movement. And do you think this explosion of protests has got any connection to the pandemic that we're all living through? I mean, people have been locked down for months. Is this connected? It, it has to be, doesn't it? There is a lot of emotional energy. And in the United States, and it's a little different here, this is a disease that is not born equally on all communities. Mm. Black Americans have been much more likely to get sick, much more likely to die, and have been much more likely to feel the shock of economic disaster, which has been much more grave here, I think, than in most other peer countries, because we have done a much less good job than other countries have in putting a floor under the incomes of people. So you mentioned before that the protests are bringing some good and some bad. And of course, the looting and the rioting and the violence is obviously bad. There's been some hesitancy for some leaders to call out the violence. Why do you think that is? Again, I have to be specific to the United States here just for a moment. It's actually easy in the United States to exaggerate how much violence there has been. I think the way to think about this is to see a a number of lines of action converging. There are the protesters, most of them peaceful. There are political radicals who have seized the moment and who do things like smash windows, um, vandalism, set fires. And then there are people who are organized or unorganized criminals who often in completely different parts of the city from where the protest and the political violence are taking place will loot stores. And here in Washington, the most disturbed night, we saw this, that the protest was near the White House. The 
worst of the vandalism was within two or three blocks of the White House. But out where I live, which is almost three miles from the White House, um, stores were attacked. No private homes and not stores randomly. Certain very particular kinds of stores that had certain kinds of goods, they were attacked and ransacked. So those are obviously very different people. The president is making it seem like we are living through a convulsion like those of the late 1960s, and that's really not true. We live in a more peaceful world. The United States is a more peaceful country. The level of destruction to property and certainly the level of harm to human beings is dramatically lower than it was in the protests of the 1960s. That's interesting that you raise the 1960s because some people have argued that these riots will benefit Trump's electoral campaign this year because famously Nixon came to power in 1968 on a platform of law and order. But you recently argued that this won't be the case. Can you explain more? Well, the president is desperately hoping that this will be the case and he tweets out the law and order slogan. I'm very influenced by a professor I had in college, a man named Roberto Lopez, who taught medieval history, actually. But he used to instruct his students, history never repeats itself. It only appears to do so to those who do not pay attention to details. The details are everything. Mm -hmm. So um, through the 60s, we had an escalating series of riots. They begin in Los Angeles in 1964, Mm -hmm. and they culminate... in the spring of 1968 after the murder of Martin Luther King in April of 1968. In those riots, which there was a terrible one in Detroit in 1967, the total death toll from those four years of rioting was certainly in the hundreds and possibly in the thousands. Much of the killing, most of it done by police, by the way, trying to put the riots down. The damage to shops and urban fabrics was catastrophic. When I arrived in Washington in 1996, there were still blocks of Washington, D.C. that had not been repaired Mm. after the rioting of April 1968, all those years before. So one important difference is the scale of the violence is just so much less. I mean, the damage here in Washington, it's not city blocks. I mean, the worst of the damage was one bank had its ATM wrecked. Otherwise, it was mostly windows, and they're mostly repaired within a few days. And the scale of human loss is, again, a fraction of what it was then. But when Donald Trump pins his political hopes, he forgets two things, and maybe three about 1968. The first is that in 1968, Richard Nixon, with whom he wants to identify, was the challenger not the incumbent. Mm -hmm. Law and order was a criticism of the existing authorities for not keeping order. Richard Nixon promised he'd do a better job. Obviously, if you're the man in charge, Mm. that's a harder slope. The -hmm. second thing that that Donald Trump is not recognizing is that Richard Nixon in 1968 was running in a three-way presidential Mm -hmm. race. He was running not only against Hubert Humphrey, the heir to Lyndon Johnson, but also against George Wallace, governor of Alabama, avowed segregationist. Wallace got 8% of the vote in the election of 1968 and won the electoral votes of five American states. Mm -hmm. So Nixon would constantly pivot. I'm not this, I'm not that. As he said in his nomination acceptance speech, just as there is no justice without order, so there is no order without justice. And Nixon's message was always Humphrey And the Democrats are wrong not to enforce the law better, but Wallace is wrong to refuse the recognition that there are legitimate aspirations here that are being suppressed. Trump is Wallace, not Nixon. Last difference. The thing that you knew, but we all know the story of Richard Nixon and Watergate and everything that came after. But in 1968, the most important thing about Richard Nixon was that he had been for eight years vice president to President Dwight Eisenhower the president who probably presided over the eight most peaceful years in American history in the 20th century. Nixon was running as the candidate of, remember how eight years ago, how quiet it was? I can bring that back. In a funny way, Nixon was Biden. 
Nixon was the, the, the candidate who promised that president who had things quiet before, I can bring them back against these people who have only made a mess. Hmm. I take on board all of those arguments, but what I'm wondering is, Will Trump use the BLM marches against Biden and the Democrats since mass gatherings are not exactly the kind of activity you want to promote during a pandemic? Will Trump be able to promote himself as being a more sensible alternative to those who are encouraging people to get out into mass gatherings, protests and potentially cause trouble? I mean, in many ways, the left have been so reactionary in their behavior that any alternative can seem reasonable to some yeah. people. Well, I, I hope one of the inoculations everyone has got about American politics, especially if you're following American politics at a distance, and of course, if you're in Australia and you're forbidden to travel, uh, you, you must follow it from a distance. So you follow it through news media, and especially, I assume with a group like this, Twitter. And Twitter has epistemological biases. If you follow Twitter, you think, boy, in the Democratic contest of 2020, Biden must be a dead duck because everyone on Twitter hates him so much. And what you then discovered was it was true that all the Democrats on Twitter hated Biden, but all the Democrats not on Twitter loved Biden and they voted for him. And Biden then rolled to what turned out to be an incredibly easy success because Twitter was distorted. The discussion of Black Lives Matter on Twitter, yeah, that can seem pretty wacky. People are calling for abolishing police departments. People are taking all kinds of extraordinary positions of vast racial generalizations, uh, attacking people who they get to catch a glimpse of somebody's bookshelves on social media. And they say, you don't have enough authors of this kind and that kind. We call you out. And it's important to remember, we're talking here about the activities of 1,400 people and mm. not to disrespect any of them. They're, every mm. voice is a voice. But most of what's going on here, Vice President Biden has said emphatically, uh, actually, I want to spend more on police forces. Uh, I don't propose to abolish them. And his own success is a testament to that there really does remain a center of gravity in the United States. And you're not forced to choose between the outer fringes of decolonization theory and Trumpism. And do you think that Biden will be successful in resisting the radical fringe of the Democratic Party, like Alexander Cortez, so on? I think he, he, he has been. And I, I think that the, the real test of what is going to change American politics, which is probably heading toward a more liberal period, is actually not what is happening at the federal level, but what is happening at the state level. And here I need to be a little bit technical for a minute. We have a census in the United States every 10 years. 2010 was a census year. 2020 was a census year. After the censuses, politicians redraw boundaries for both the federal and state constituencies. It's a shocking system. No other country on earth does it. I'm sure Australia does not. I know my native Canada does not. No one lets politicians draw boundaries. But it's left over from a different period in American life, and no one's ever managed to find a way to get rid of it. So scandalous as it is, it happens. Now, there have always been limits on it. A sense of decency, deterrence, because both parties had to watch the other. And since the civil rights era, some supervision by the courts. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 put some limits on gerrymandering. But in the elections of 2010, the Republicans won huge victories at the state level, achieved a kind of state-level dominance that no political party has had in the United States since the Republicans had it in the 1920s. And they then proceeded to rewrite boundaries in a way so startling, so gross, that you have situations where in a state like Wisconsin, the Republicans got 45% of the vote 
in 2018 and have two-thirds of the seats. Less than half the vote, two-thirds majority in both houses of the Wisconsin state legislature. So it's very likely that the Democrats will do well in 2020, and 2020 is a census year, and they may have an opportunity in 2021 to do unto the Republicans as the Republicans did unto them in 2011. And that, more than Biden, is going to be the driver of pushing American politics to the left, mm. a new era of democratic success at the state level, and especially in states that are often thought of as very conservative, like Georgia, like uh, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. It is noteworthy that Trump is holding rallies in Texas and Oklahoma. He's telling you that he regards those states, I mean, Oklahoma is not in play, but Texas possibly could be. But do you think the Democrats will win the Electoral College? Nothing is certain, and American politics can be fluky, as we saw in 2016, but yes, I do. In terms of the Rust Belt states, do you think they're still in play or do you think they're hard on Trump at the moment? Trump did well in you know, around the Great Lakes, which was the center of the old industrial belt in the United States and which mm -hmm. have, have been heavily deindustrialized. That's where Trump scored his amazing and unexpected breakthrough in 2016. Trump often says the polls were wrong. The polls were not wrong. They got the margin of victory approximately right. They, they predicted mm -hmm. that Hillary Clinton would run two or three points ahead of Donald Trump, yep. and she did. Mm -hmm. But... Trump had his vote distributed in a very efficient way, and he had this breakthrough in the industrial states. Yeah. But the map may be very different. I mean, of those three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania that were so important, Michigan is serious trouble for him. I think the map this time will look a little bit different, and states like Georgia and North Carolina will be very important. 2020 is a remarkable year, not least because we are living through a pandemic and the election will have to be held during the pandemic. But I'm wondering also if 2020 has refuted some of the popular narratives about Donald Trump. We've been hearing for four years now that Trump is an authoritarian, he has fascist tendencies, that type of thing. But if you compare his reaction to the pandemic with that of someone like Viktor Orban of Hungary, mm -hmm. it's been completely incompetent and a mess. So what I mean by that is Viktor Orban has used the crisis of the pandemic to expand his powers, whereas Trump has seen the pandemic as an irritation and has basically, at least in the early stages, yeah. didn't want to do anything. Now, is that really the behavior of an authoritarian or just an incompetent leader? What do you think about that? Well, that's a profound question, and, and we may all end up disagreeing about this, but here's a, a way the way that I think about it. Different political systems offer different kinds of resources to authoritarian leaders. Mm -hmm. So in a country like Hungary, where there's one level of government, there's, there's no meaningful local government in Hungary, where the judiciary is weak, where the civil service is easy to politicize, where the country is very homogenous, and where it's easy to rile people against foreigners, there's one path to consolidate power. Those methods would not work very well in the United States. Trump's main political resource has always been culture war, inflammation, turn people against each other. I mean, he leads a minority movement. Viktor Orban, thug and crook though he is, is quite popular in Hungary and has been successful at the polls and to this day probably has a majority, or maybe not right this minute, but most of the time since he took power in 2010 has had a majority of Hungarians behind him. Donald Trump has never had a majority of Americans behind him. So he has to find other kinds of resources. And so his resource is inflaming these cultural divides. And what he has done very successfully with the pandemic is turned it into a matter of, of a culture war. You wouldn't think the question of, should I wear a face mask during a pandemic of respiratory infection spread by 
airborne droplets. You wouldn't think that was something that people would argue about. Mm -hmm. Left, right, center, you know, we all breathe. We all are susceptible to respiratory infections. So just as left, right, center, we all wear coats when it's cold. Left, right, center, we would all mask our faces during an infection like this. But Trump has managed to convince people to make it a, a mark of division. And so in a situation where the incompetence, as you say, of his response should have damaged his standing, perhaps more than it did, he was able to hold on to his standing by creating all of these cultural conflicts through the pandemic. You've pointed out that things as apolitical and neutral, such as a mask, have become culture war signifiers. Is Trump really driving this or is he just a consequence of these culture wars? Because he will go away but I'm sure that these culture wars will still persist. There's something larger than Trump going on here. Don't yes. you agree? Oh, for sure. He is both cause and beneficiary. I think one of the most important, and I've written about this in the first of my two Trump books. I've been writing about this actually through my career. The very first book I ever wrote about politics in the middle 1990s made a prediction that the future of American conservatism would be defined by the waning of religion. And in the 1990s, um, that was a bold prediction. Back, back then, what social science showed was that the United States was a real outlier compared to other democracies, much more religious. Uh, Peter Berger, a great sociologist of religion, said that you know, so much of their life, Americans were organized like Sweden, but in their religious lives, they were organized like India. And there are these huge gaps in you know, faith in God and church attendance, or at least self-declared church attendance between Americans and everybody else in the developed world. So I, I suggested in 1994, I thought this was going to come to an end. And I was a little early off the mark, but since in the 21st century, that has really been true. You have seen a startlingly fast pace of secularization. And we can argue about what is exactly happening. Some people might say, and they're probably right, that Americans were always more secular than they told pollsters they were. And what has changed is not their, so much their belief in practice, but the answers they give when asked questions. They no longer pretend to be more religious than they are. Whatever it is, we are living in a period in which American politics is caught up to the rest of the world. And people now find more meaning in their political lives and less meaning in private faith, private spirituality than they used to. Mm -hmm. And so that makes everything a culture conflict. And this is what, one of the reasons I think that Quillette has become such an influential voice in the world is that you have, Quillette is endlessly puzzled at the ability of people to turn the way math is taught into a culture, uh, do we have to be woke about the periodic table? And so Trump has battened on this and we've, we've had all of these conflicts and this is a big theme of the Trumpocalypse book that these are potent political resources, mm. but only for destruction, not for good. And if yes. we're going to have more stable political systems, mm. we have to redress some of these divides. One of the things that I believe has made Australian democracy healthy over the years is something that would never be accepted in America, and that is compulsory voting. But because yeah. we have compulsory voting, it forces our politicians to appeal to the centre, even in their campaigning. Well, especially in their campaigning. And when we watch uh, electoral campaigns in America, we're somewhat stunned by how much politicians can appeal to hardcore political fanatics and not to the center. Yeah. And I'm wondering when will American politics get back to, I mean, that's, yeah. that's too big a question, but how, how do we get politicians to appeal to the middle more than what they're doing at the moment? No, you, you make a fantastic point, and I've never thought enough about the issue of compulsory voting. It's I've pondered it from time to time, but 
your diagnosis, I think, is exactly right. Because one of the things that compulsory voting means, and this is so obvious it's painful to say it, but it needs to be said, is one strategy that is not available to Australian parties is to prevent your political opponents from voting. So if you know that you have, and you have a multi-party system, not a two-party system, but if you know you have 38% and you need to get to 44% to be safe and to govern, you don't have the option in Australia of saying, well, let's just take six points of the electorate and prevent them from voting. Hmm. You have to find some way to reach, okay, I know 38% like me, there are 6% who I need who are more skeptical, I have to win them over. But in the United States, you do have the option, parties do have the option of of somehow preventing the other side from voter, knocking out its votes or making its votes not count equally. Mm. And so, and this has become more and more acute in the 2010s. So the Republicans have become more, their political message, which worked so well in the 20th century, has not worked well in the 21st and has worked decreasingly well in the 21st. Mm. And in the Tea Party years, it really failed. They just were not connecting with American majorities. Donald Trump was a a minority president, George W. Bush in his first election was a minority president. But because there was always the option or the hope that if you just ran the system correctly, mm-hmm. you could stop enough people who don't like you from voting, then you could run a base first campaign. And twenty that is absolutely the Donald Trump plan for 2020. Base only plus voter suppression, maybe I can eke it out. Mm-hmm. And while I'm not sure I walk all the way with you on compulsory voting, I think one, and why I argue about this in the book, is we need to have a real commitment to a new Voting Rights Act in the United States to take away from politicians yes. the option of stopping people from voting as a way to win. So you mentioned that you've been a critic of the Republican Party for a long time. I mean, you identify as a conservative, but you have criticized the Republican Party since before Donald Trump emerged. Yeah. And but I, I was heard... a very loyal critic. <laughs> And you, uh, on a podcast with Jonathan Kay recently on the Quillette podcast, you mentioned that you were criticizing the Republican Party because you could see Trump coming or someone like him coming along. And the dogmas that you were criticizing were dogmas around the free market, such as immigration is always a net benefit. There are no costs involved with immigration. Living standards don't need to be addressed and those types of things. Do you think that some of these free market dogmas or orthodoxies that the Republican Party adhered to for decades, do you think ultimately they are responsible for the creation of Trump? Yeah, I became politically aware in the late 70s at a time when the great economic problems were inflation and just general economic inefficiency. When union power uh, was a real check on productivity, not so much in the United States, although in the United States too, but not, but it's very much in peer countries, and in which there was a lattice of uh, regulation left over from the war and the depression that just had long ago stopped making sense. In the United States, in 1980, in the year when I went to college, there was one telephone company for the whole United States. There were no choices. You got whatever products that single telephone monopoly chose to make available to you. And if they didn't think the fax machine was a technology of the future, you didn't get a fax machine. Uh, You would read about it that the Japanese have it, but until the telephone monopoly made it available. So through the 70s and 80s, Republicans had a series of answers to those things. And it was very dynamic and exciting. And I I, I think they were mostly right about all of those things back that they, they said between 1975 and 1985. They sort of, as the unions warned, they sort of worked themselves out of a job, though. They solved mm-hmm. a lot of the problems they'd come into being to solve. So when I started wandering after about 2005, 
what I, I started wandering pragmatically at first. I said, you know, we're not going to be a very competitive political organization because we're not talking about what people care about. Inflation really is dead and not coming back. Mm. But over time, what began as a pragmatic opposition, as we, we each went our separate ways, and my I wandered one path and the party became more extreme, more fanatical, mm. more authoritarian. And then you alluded to a story I told Jonathan Kay. When Trump appeared in 2016, I, I had a friend who was very close to the campaign who asked me why I wasn't attracted to it because mm. here was Donald Trump and actually he was talking about themes I talked about. He was talking about we need less immigration, we need a health care guarantee, we need to pay more attention to the economic concerns of the middle class. Opioids is really an epidemic, it really is killing people, it's not fake news, we have to address it. And I said to my friend, but I was talking about those things because I saw Trump coming and I wanted to stop him, not Trump the man, but yeah. Trump the thing. Yeah. I'm not going to now, now that he's here, say, okay, good, this is what I wanted. This is what this is the golem I didn't want. Yes. It strikes me that you're in a position to criticize um, the, the right wing of America or the American Republican Party. Do you think some of that, some of your criticism comes from the fact that you grew up in another country <laughs> or you're from another country sure. that has more moderate yeah. politics potentially? For sure. I mean, being Canadian has, uh, I, I was born a Canadian citizen. I still spend a lot of time in Canada. Um, I spend my summers there. I have a house there. Uh, my sister's a member of the Canadian Senate. I'm very closely bound to Canada. And I, I think one way it, it has an impact is a lot of what drives American conservatism is simple unawareness of how things are in the rest of the developed world. Mm -hmm. I remember in 2010 when Marco Rubio was appearing as a national figure. He was a Florida politician and he was running for U.S. Senate in 2010. He made a speech at CPAC in which he said, the United States is the only country in the world where it doesn't matter who you are or what your background is, that if you have a good idea, you can rise and make a success of yourself. Uh, you, you can do that in Australia. Yeah, and you can do it in Canada. You can do it in Denmark. Uh, you can do it in Great Britain. Uh, you can actually do it in quite a lot of places. And that that sense of you know there are other peer democracy that every it is so often true in the united states a problem is presented and americans look to their history and never think to ask i wonder how someone how other countries have addressed this problem mm. uh, maybe it's not as hard as it looks mm. and so simply doing comparative politics yeah. just because i cross the border twice a year more mm. often than that but mm. that i think that's had a big impact on me sure but you did mention before that religion is a central part of American culture and it obviously has been since its founding and I think there are more evangelicals in the United States than other countries, yeah. certainly advanced economies. Is this hyper-politicization and increasing polarization connected somehow to those roots of religious minorities leaving Europe and finding a new home in America and somehow there's this this strain of religious type thinking embedded deep into the culture. I mean that's a bit broad question but I'm wondering what you think about that. I, I, I think that's clearly right but I would say in right now the thing that I'm most impressed by is it, it is the withdrawal of religion. I mean yeah. the, the movement we call wokeism is a religious movement. I mean in this very name it's woke, awakening. <laughs> yeah. um, 
You know, I once was blind and now I see. I mean, the, mm. the United States had a great awakening in the 1740s. That was a religious movement. It had a great awakening in the 1840s, another religious movement. And now we're having this awakening. And, and it has... In, in its rituals of co confession and condemnation, um, in its belief in sins that your own deeds will never suffice to atone for, and only through grace mm. given to you from an ex unbought from an external source can you achieve mm. um, salvation. It has a lot of the structures of a faith, and I think one one of the things, and I, I may come at this from a different place. I mean, I am a I'm not a highly observant person, but I, I am a religious person, and I I think. The central idea of religious, of liberal politics with this lowercase l, its greatest strength and its greatest vulnerability is it doesn't, so, it solves the problems of how do we live together peacefully, how do we develop our economy, how do we resolve differences, but it doesn't answer the, the, the really important questions. Why, what should I live for? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to live a full and satisfying life? It's not the job of politics to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. Our job in politics is to preserve the space for you to find the answer for yourself. And then people say, I can't, I don't know. I need someone to give it to me. And God doesn't feel like God is there anymore for me. And certainly organized religion, I don't trust that. So I need someone to give me this meaning. And you know, your politics, it just feels like thin gruel. All you're saying is we do it your way and the economy will be a little bit better one decade from the next, or the next decade from the last. But do you think that, yes, America has secularized and really organized religion has retreated from the public sphere to some degree, but the way people are taking on politics as part of their identity, and not just on the intersectional left, but also on the right with the adherence to the Make America Great Again cult, this infusing politics with identity has that filled the place where a vacuum yeah. has been left because organized religion has left the public sphere or is less dominant? I can only be very impressionistic about this, but during the 2016 campaign, when Donald Trump was winning the Republican nomination, pollsters found that Donald Trump did very badly with Republicans who went to church at least once a week. They preferred Ted Cruz, especially, mm -hmm. but other candidates too. Yeah. The typical Trump voter, before he consolidated the nomination, or in the spring and summer of 2016, the typical Trump voter was someone who'd been raised as an evangelical, but had mm. stopped attending church. Right. Interesting. are people from evangelicalism was a cultural identity, but mm. not really an intense faith. Mm. Now, since then, he has consolidated the, uh, the religious evangelicals behind him, too. But I think for a lot of evangelicals, evangelical is both an ethnicity and a religion. Mm. Mm. And it can remain, I mean, it's weird because there's nothing ethnic about it, but but it functions as an ethnicity. And even mm. after you cease to be active in the church, even after, even if you're living in a way that, you know, the pastors of your church wouldn't approve, you retain a sense of yourself as an evangelical Christian. And Christian is often, it's often a way of saying, I'm a white American from a family that's been here for a long time with a bias toward the South and the Midwest, even though maybe I don't believe in God so very, very much anymore. Mm. Talking about the cultural identity of those evangelicals, I'm wondering how politicians who want to move on from Trump and the Trump presidency, how they engage with those voters in a way that is not dismissive of their concerns and needs and desires. Yeah. I think one of the, the big things that I've noticed 
from being an outsider and watching American politics play out is that, and it's not just me, I've noticed a lot of people say that they don't like Trump, but they understand why people voted for him. However, many pockets of the US media scorn or make fun of people who do vote for Trump. So how do we reduce that alienation? I don't want to be completely clinical about this because Donald Trump is a thuggish, corrupt, and cruel figure, and it's a bad act to support him. So I'm about to speak clinically about this, but I don't want to relinquish entirely the moral judgment. It's it's a wrong thing to do. Mm. And you shouldn't ever be sarcastic or sneering or superior in your judgments, but you also shouldn't withhold judgment where judgment is called for. But to your question, I observed something years ago in politics that made an enormous impression on me. It's something I've never forgotten. In, in, 19, in the election of 1992, Clinton, Perot, the, the elder Bush, there were a series of debates. And the third debate was a town hall. And this is literally the I feel your pain moment. The I feel your pain moment, although that's not what Bill Clinton, the phrase he used at the time, occurred as follows. A, a woman sto- stood up, black woman, older or visibly very nervous at being on TV for the one and only time in her life and in front of tens of millions of people. Mm-hmm. And she said in kind of an uncertain voice, I would like to ask each of the candidates how you personally have been affected by the deficit. Yeah. So to make the long story short, the Bush and uh, flubbed the question. Perot gave a characteristically mm-hmm. insane answer. And Bill Clinton replied. He got to go third, so he had time to think. He said, I will answer your question, but first answer mine. Mm-hmm. How have you personally been affected by the deficit? And he mm-hmm. stood with that huge body as he moved it closer to her. Mm-hmm. She was very tiny. And she began to answer the question. And as she answered, it became clear she didn't mean the deficit at all. She was talking about the recession that was happening at the same time. Mm. And whether she didn't exactly know the difference or whether she'd been confused because Mm. she was nervous about being on TV, she'd mixed them up. Mm. Well, once he understood that, he could then give, he gave, that's the I feel your, he gave this powerful answer. But what he understood was, what Clinton figured out is the language of politics is for most people a learned language, a foreign language, Mm. full of words and concepts they don't exactly understand. Mm. And the job of a politician is to hear the question behind the question. And so I think the way you redeem Trump voters from where they are is by hearing the question behind their question and answering that. Mm -hmm. But I am not a politician, so I get to say, if you support Trump, you're doing a bad thing. Mm. That makes me think about the the criticism. You've you've made some criticisms of globalization, but you wouldn't go so far as hit globalists against nationalists. So can you explain how one can criticize globalization and the excesses of globalization without succumbing to that us versus them dichotomy that some of these demagogic figures do? As a self-introduction, let me say, although I am not a popular person in the conservative world, and although probably most American conservatives who have care about me or have heard of me would not regard me as one of their own, it is still true that I am still most of my work is about saving most of the conservative project Mm. as I grew up in it and knew it. So I want to save global free trade. I want to save the free movement of capital. I think that the project that was built at the end of the Second World War of of integration of the economies and global cooperation, I think this is the greatest thing in government the human species has ever done. And that in every way, the world of 1980 was better than the world of 1950 and the world 
post-Cold War was better than the world pre-Cold War. And these are tremendous accomplishments, and I want to save them. And so when you talk about where it's gone wrong or where people made mistakes, understand this is in the spirit of conservative reform. It is reforming in order to conserve. It is changing in order to keep the good. So I think there are two big mistakes that we made about globalization. First, I think the, the very word globalization was a mistake. Because what globalization did was that word is it took all forms of international integration and treated them as if they you had to accept them as a package. They were one thing. And they're not. Immigration is not trade. And movement of capital isn't trade. And they are a different thing, again, from the institutions of international cooperation. But so the two things I think we need to revisit, first and foremost, migration. Between 1990 and 2015, quarter of a century, 44 million people left the global south for the global north. That's the biggest voluntary movement of human beings in history. Mm. And it is unsurprising that it has had radicalizing effects on all the receiving countries, also on the departing countries. It changes the departing countries too, because those 44 million people send money back home and they change the social order. Mm. Uh, their remittances change, change who is rich and who is poor back in the villages at home. It is uh, a very disorienting event. And it has many good elements to it that we want to preserve, but we need to understand how it can't keep growing forever without shock. Mm. So I think we need to revisit the migration bit. And the second thing we need to think about is a lot of people, including me, thought that the arrival of China into the global economy, you know, we had in the 50s, we welcomed Japan and Germany back after World War II. Mm. And then in the 70s, we welcomed Taiwan and South Korea, Singapore and Hong Kong, the Asian tigers, and and, and so on. And then in uh, the 80s, um, countries like Mexico, and then in the 1990s, India rejoined the world economy. And China was a little bigger, but it would be the same thing. Yeah. And there comes a point where just the sheer size of a country changed that China's arrival in the international marketplace was different from all of those other previous arrivals, mm. if only in this one way, is that when Taiwan rejoined the world economy or when Mexico did, they were never going to be big enough. They could say to the world economy, okay, you folks, there are going to be some new rules around here, or we're just going to ignore them. They had to sign up for the pre-existing rules. When China, now the world's second biggest economy, perhaps soon the biggest, says, we don't want to play by the rules. Yeah. It's very hard to make them. And we need to think that the institutions of globalization that work so well to bring all these other countries in, we needed to understand how different China was fully than we did. Yeah. I think a lot of people are looking at China's behavior at, uh, in recent months and years and have sort of come to the conclusion that it was perhaps a little bit naive to think that they would play by the international rules. Are you worried about the trajectory that China is on? Are you worried about the liberal international order, considering some of China's recent behavior? Well, of course, but I'm also not ready to give up. You're going to be wrong a lot of the time. Yeah. It's just in the human mind. So you can either be paralyzed by that or you can act. I think the people in the early 1990s who bet, hopefully, on Russia did the right thing, even though it turned out to be a bad bet, yeah. because you have to try. And I think the people who bet in the late 1990s and early 2000s that China could join the World Trade Organization and, and would develop in a positive way, I think that was, a, that was the right bet to make, even though it turned out to be mistaken. Mm -hmm. They were not wrong because they were mistaken. They were hopeful. And what was the alternative? It was, it was conflict. Mm -hmm. So we now have more information. But I don't think we should give up hope. I mean, I think sure. we want to build a structure of incentives that continues to offer China the possibility. We're, that the rest of the world is happy to share the planet with you. And we are delighted to see you 
achieve a higher standard of living for your your population. But there's some things that the rest of us on Earth expect. Please don't lie about pandemic diseases. Uh, <laughs> please don't continue to fill. Please don't fill the air with carbon. Please don't use your technology to control not only your own people's behavior. That's terrible enough, and we don't like it. But try to police us. No. So we need to begin, and this is something I really would want to say to an Australian audience. Donald Trump's vision of the world is the United States can bark orders at people and they will comply. And that was never a good idea. But it's ridiculously obsolete in a, at a time when the Chinese economy is maybe 80% the size of the American economy. China is too big to be barked at. And if you're going to build incentives to induce better behavior and to constrain worse behavior, you have to work with partners. The United States needs as seriously as in the 1940s and 50s to build a new global coalition, not against China, yeah. because the hand of friendship should always be there, but to be ready for them, for the, both the good and the bad possibilities. Mm. You mentioned one effect of globalization as raising living standards for a country like China. Do you think living standards have stagnated or declined in the United States? And was that ever factored in to projections around globalization earlier when the project was just getting started. We're wandering into a very, very contentious area, as you know. We've lived through a period of quite rapid technological change, and that makes it hard to measure living standards. I, I forget now who's the origin author of the line, um, I wanted a flying car, but I only got 140 characters. I do not need 3D car crashes. The 2D car crashes are bad enough. <laughs> I have here in my pocket um, a device that contains all of human knowledge mm. and allows me to talk for free to you, right, in Australia, instantly. Mm. That's not a little thing. Mm. That's not a little thing. That's, and that, that's better than giving drunken bozos more places to have car crashes. So I take seriously the, the, um, the qualitative improvement, but it's very hard to measure. Mm. I mean, it is certainly true that the rich countries as a whole are having the medium uh, income countries catch up to them. And it's also true that wealth has become tended to become more concentrated for reasons both of policy and the nature of the world economy. I mean, that we live in a planet now where if you have assets or if you have a globally traded skill, you have more com consumers or potential consumers than ever before. So mm. that tends to raise your income. Mm. Meanwhile, if you, all you have are ordinary skills, you have more competitors than ever before. And that mm. tends to depress your income. I want to move to a different topic now. We've all heard about economic inequality and political polarization, and we're all aware of there being divides which separate us. But one important divide is that between men and women. Fewer young people are getting married and starting families. People are living inside their family homes for longer and longer. There are more single people in all advanced economies, including the United States. What do you think of that general trend? And is there any role that politics can play in helping people settle down and have families? Or is that even a goal that we want to promote? I am the father of three children between ages 18 and 27, so I don't think about this question more than about 93% of the time. It seems to me about the greatest blessing in human life when it works, and the fact that so many people are n either not receiving this blessing or receiving it when half their life is already gone, mm. uh, that just strikes me as a, a source of human unhappiness that we need to do something about or think about anyway. Mm. And part of it is just cultural, is making people believe in it. Mm. We've had some a lot of instability in personal life that has given younger people a jaundiced view of it. And no one has ever discovered good public policy tools. I mean, all the countries, for example, 
subsidize child rearing to greater or lesser degrees. In the United States, even where we have such a stingy welfare state, we, we still do subsidize child rearing. And it, but we, we can't possibly deliver enough money to even it out. And of course, we're chasing a moving target because in the days when most people had relatively low-skilled, low-paid jobs, and women especially, that the lost wages, which are the real cost of leaving the workforce, even for a short time, and of course it follows you through life, if a woman misses a year or two out of the workforce to raise a child, that, that follows her for a long time to come. So it's one thing when, when women are working as cashiers and clerks as they were in the economy of the 1950s, you can maybe imagine a way to make her whole. But when women are working as, as professionals, it's impossible. It's just you, that that is going to be a, a cost that families shoulder. Mm-hmm. And there's re- it's hard to imagine any public policy that can make a difference. And some things can help, like a more universal approach to health care in the United States or more comprehensive child care policies. There are things at the margin you can try to do, and I think we should try everything. Yeah. But we also have to accept that there may be limits to what policy can do. And this may be more a case where, you know, it's... We're back to the liberal order where there are limits to what the government can do, but that doesn't mean there's nothing that society can do. And simply telling people all the time, you'll be happier. Children are wonderful. You want them. You, I promise you, you really want them. That might do some good. Mm. And it reminds me that politics and culture are quite separate. And the cleave between political power and cultural power, particularly within the United States, has never been more apparent. Has that trend always been there? The, the fact that what's popular in Hollywood is completely different from you yes. know, what's popular in Washington, D.C. Has that cleave always been there or is this relatively no, this is, new? Well, let me give you two, uh, two quotes about this that I think sum up the change. Um, one is from Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who said 30 years ago uh, that the uh, central conservative truth is that culture is more powerful than politics. Mm. And the central liberal truth is that politics can change culture. And then Adam Gopnik in a book published two years ago had a very funny line. He said that this is the mismatch, that conservatives want cultural victories and only get political victories. (laughs) And the left wants political victories and only gets cultural victories. There's something that may be inescapably tragic about the way politics works. What I hope is that human beings are learning animals. I I hope, for example, on the question between men men and women, that we had stable marriages, not always happy, but stable, before the rise of women's equality. And then the rise of women's equality shook the ecology and just changed. A lot of marriages couldn't survive and a lot of relationships were never formed because they were premised on a certain, uh, the idea was that um, the man provided certain things, the woman provided certain things in return. It wasn't really an emotional exchange, it was a material exchange and it could work. And then we had this the, these jolts and it's maybe not surprising that the passage has been rocky, but I think we're now clearly arrived in a new era and I'm hoping that the people who watched the cultural revolutions of the last 30 years look at this and say, it's better to be with somebody alone. Yeah. It's a terrible thing to miss children. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to find, as young men and women, as members of new generations, we have to find new ways of navigating this because otherwise we're going to be alone. Questions from the audience. One is from Lois. She asks, why are the Republican senators and representatives so terrified of Trump? Yeah. Lois, I, you break my heart. I, um, <laughs> I wish I could tell you. Um, we could focus on the positive and, and talk yeah. a lot about Mitt Romney. Um, yeah. I, I, I think we could talk something about um, 
the the weakness of the of the party system. I think maybe without there, there are many things to say, but one thing that I've been struck is when you have a political system that rewards people who are very good at raising money. The people who are very good at raising money tend not to be heroes. And in fact, tend to be not very independent people at all. And so we have built maybe a Darwinian uh, ecology that rewards people without a lot of courage. And then we need people with courage. And guess what? We built an, eco an ecology that uh, doomed the, cur the courageous ones to extinction and rewarded the uncourageous ones. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a profound statement. I've got another question. One is from Thomas. He asks, given the political paralysis of the West from COVID-19, combined with no leadership from the US, what do you think will happen to democracy in Hong Kong this year? Mm. Yeah, um, Thomas, you're speaking, you're singing my song here. I, I, I mean, it's so amazing. We've had this truly global crisis affecting all the developed countries together and and where's the where's the skype call with the heads of all of the leaders in you know in one frame i mean you've all seen that joke about the last supper on on zoom right but mm -hmm. we haven't had that you know what well, you could have the the g20 on zoom and we haven't had that um it, that neither the reality of it nor the symbolism of of um leaders working together um everyone has been on their own and the result has been we've had Look, some of this, I think, I don't think it's a terrible thing that we have many different countries starting vaccine research projects at the same time. When you don't know what to do, it's good to do lots of different things. Um, but the idea that we put up all these barriers to travel, I mean, that struck me as just completely irrational. Um, Donald Trump is always congratulating himself for having built travel barriers that keep foreigners out of the United States, but that allow Americans returning from foreign countries, of course, to return because they must, um, not understanding, well, the virus can travel just as well on an American returning home as it can on a Chinese person visiting the United States. Um, and of course, Hong Kong has been left to its, its own devices. Because of the strength and power of China, there's a limit to how much we can do for Hong Kong. But I think we can also, you know, we should be working now. Hong Kong is a warning to all of us that we need to build a world in which China sits down at the table and, and discovers that there are um, enough like-minded countries with enough economic clout mm. that their future depends on adapting to others, not their future depending on using their wealth to force others to adapt to them. Reasonable suggestion. Now, I've got another question from Pravind. He wants to know where the Republican Party goes to following Trump, especially since demographic change within the United States may favor the Democratic Party. Dem Let's start with the demographic change. There was a joke after um, end of communism in Eastern Europe, how many Poles slash Czechs slash Slovaks does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is none. The market will do it. Uh, and that people think of these, people are very willing to put their future into the hands of these forces of history. What ought to be happening is demographic change neither feature, favors one party nor another. Um, that the history of past immigration into the United States showed that immigrant groups uh, flowed into both Republican and Democratic parties. Hmm. And often not because of anything the parties did, but because of the inherent tensions between the immigrant groups themselves. So the um, the Irish immigration in the United States, which 
real uh, the Irish Catholic Southern Irish immigration, which really gets going in the 1840s and is strong through the 1880s and 1890s and continues in the 20th century. Irish immigrants tended to move into the Democratic Party and make the Democratic Party, at least in the North, a very Irish institution. Shortly after the Irish began arriving in large numbers, or a generation after the Irish began arriving in large numbers, we began receiving very large numbers of immigrants from Italy, uh, who often arrived in the same areas that the Irish did, and discovered that the Irish controlled the Catholic Church and the Democratic Party. And so Italian Americans have tended to be Republican. Um, and not because their politics were necessarily so very different from their Irish neighbors. It was because they needed a political machinery of their own. The Irish had taken one. They, they moved into the other. And I don't think there's any reason that the politics of the 21st century should look differently from the politics of the 19th if it's allowed. Um, so to the extent that demographic change means rising numbers of people from other countries, especially the global south, that doesn't have to be an advantage for the Democrats. But demographic change means a couple of other things that are maybe more inherently challenging for a party of the center-right. The first is the extraordinary rise in American secularism, the move away from organized religion. Uh, you sometimes hear it said that the fastest growing religion in the United States is Islam. That's true only because people don't count no religion as religion. But if you count no religion, then that is far and away the most rapidly growing. Uh, and it's grow and it's growing because of the move of young people away from the churches of their of their parents, and the other, of course, is increasing numbers of single people. And single people don't tend to fit well into parties of the center right. But there's there are opportunities for parties of of the center right. They but they just have to stop insulting and re repudiating people. Uh, and one of the things that is so strange about Donald Trump is that he's trying to build a party of enterprise and markets on the votes of people who live in the areas where enterprising markets are working least well and repudiating the people who live in the areas where enterprising markets are working best. And that's not sustainable. Hmm. All over the world, there's been this flip from uh, voters for more conservative parties being, they used to be the wealthier business owners, um, that mm -hmm. group of people, and now it's increasingly the working class while those who vote for left-wing parties are increasingly urbanites, educated, more wealthier professionals. So this flip has occurred all over the world, not just in the United States. Do you right. think there's a future for the Republican Party in combining social conservatism, which seems to appeal to many working class voters, with more um, economic centrism or moving to the left on economics? Yeah. The future of social conservatism depends on what content you're going to give mm. to social conservatism. So I, I think that social conservatism has a very lively future um, if it is expressed as a defensive work. For example, what that would mean in real terms, in real world terms is that conservative, a conservative party would say, we are against the universal basic income. We are for forms of income support that relate your what you get back from the state in some way to what you pay in. Um, so we're in favor of maybe wage subsidies, we're in favor of um, help with health care, but no, we are opposed to just getting paid regardless of what you do. Um, and and then you leave the concept of a universal basic income, which is an, uh, not a terrible, but that's the part, that's an idea for a party of the center left, for a non-social conservative party. Um, in the same way that a party of the center right can be socially conservative in saying we, we want to see families formed. The things I was saying a few minutes ago about how... Um, we think people will be happier if they form partnerships and raise children. We want to 
make that easier for them and then leave it to somebody else to say, no, the, the meaning of life is expressing your own individual personality. And if you um, choose to form a partner, that's great. But if you don't, that's also great. Uh, but if social conservatism means um, truly reactionary cultural politics, um, then obviously it doesn't have a future. It's one thing for a conservative party to say, you know, your parents make a good point. It's a very different thing to say, you know, your dead great-grandparents, yeah. they made a good point. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good way of putting it. We've got an interesting comment, uh, question from Boris, and you might not have the answer to it, but I'll ask you anyway. If you don't have the answer, that's fine. Um, he wants to know who Trump's key financial and ideological boosters are and who benefits the most from his ascendancy? Who is the 1% who have the most to gain from his ascendancy? Okay, well, um, this requires a very fine-grained analysis because there are certain businesses that have done well under Trump and other businesses that have done less well, even before the recent economic disasters. Mm -hmm. So extractive industries tended to do very well. Um, under Trump, uh, globally traded industries did not. So, um, uh, defense con. So, you, you, if you uh, if you were someone who owned a coal company, you would feel more warmly to Donald Trump than if you were somebody who owned, say, um, a company that exported soybeans to China. Um, but uh, so he, Trump's mo has has had an essentially um, speaking of reactionary a reactionary vision of the U.S. economy, and Trump Trump's model. I mean, you you listen to him talk. And he doesn't process changes in the American economy that have happened since 1970. In particular, um, the, the obsession with the coal mining industry is just weird. So when Donald Trump was running for president in 2016, uh, depending on how you counted, the total number of people who worked in coal, not just miners, but bookkeepers, uh, marketing people, um, everyone directly employed by the coal industry, depending on how you count it, it was somewhere between 50 and 80,000 people. Which, just to put it in context, is fewer than the number of people who are licensed by their state to teach yoga. I don't mean people who yeah. do teach yoga, because there are yeah. millions of those. I yeah. mean, people who hold a license, who actually wow. went to the trouble of going through a course. There are more yoga instructors than there are people in the coal mining industry. Yeah. Um, and Trump could never process this, yeah, this was a big industry in 1950, but it's not. And and uh, coal and oil are declining. I mean, America's oil consumption peaked in the year 2005. Mm -hmm. um, we are we're a post coal increasingly a post coal economy. We're beginning to be a post oil economy. Um, his vision of what people did for a living was so out of date, um, and so those kinds of industries tended to do well. And it's. Uh, it, it, meanwhile, Donald Trump, until he made his alliance with Mark Zuckerberg, uh, tended not to do very well in Silicon Valley or anywhere that, that there was the future because he didn't understand those industries. And he, he really did believe in a national, not a global economy. Yeah. Another interesting question this time from Jeremy. If Trump loses in November, what will leadership of the Republican Party look like? And what will the Republican Party be like as an opposition to the Biden presidency? Um, everything depends on the margin of defeat. Okay. Um, so if if Trump loses narrowly, um, and if the Republicans either hold the Senate or at least do reasonably well in the Senate, and if they 
hold key states if they um, don't lose if they hold on to uh, their Senate seat in Georgia, for example, if they hold on to their Senate seat in North Carolina, um, it will be pretty easy for Republicans to say, you know, Donald Trump was lazy. Um, he was glaringly corrupt and he couldn't keep his blinking mouth shut. Uh, and the lesson we learned is that Donald Trump discovered many useful things about America, uh, but we need to make our dog whistles more high pitched. Uh, we need to have a stronger work ethic. We need not to tweet, obviously, and we need to find a better. We need to go find a better Trump. He found something useful, but he himself was just too much of a buffoon, and that will then favor politicians like um, Tom Cotton, who's the senator from Arkansas, uh, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, um, Dan Crenshaw, who is um, uh, a Republican member of the House from Texas. By the way, all of these people are much more intelligent and decent people than Donald Trump, and any one of them would be a vastly superior president. And and maybe they didn't all begin life intending to be Trumpy, but they have ended up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Don and Donald Trump's own children may, may try, although I think they will be so consumed by their legal and financial troubles that they may find it hard to get off the ground. Um, so that's where we'll be if, it, if it's close, that, that uh, we will see the Republican co- Party continuing to evolve in the direction of being the French National Front, but less foolhardy, less loud-mouthed, and less nakedly racially mm-hmm. provocative. If sure. it's a bad defeat, um, if the Republicans re- lose a lot of Senate seats, if they if, if they find that they're fighting for control of Texas, then I think re- people will draw bigger lessons and say, you know what, Donald Trump, it was fool's gold. Uh, and we made it, we went down a completely wrong path, and we have to find a way to be a more modern kind of center-right party. Um, and and I, that would be my hope, that would be my advice. And I, I always think, this is a more general point, if you're a party that has taken a bad defeat in an election, the British Conservatives after Blair, um, uh, so many other examples, I think it's a big mistake for a party like that to try to fix the situation right away. Because you, just, you need time. Um, and that the decisions you need to make, that... That really, when, you, when if you're a British conservative, I was very close to this in 1997 after the crushing defeat to Tony Blair. Um, uh, you said, what, what should we do? And my advice to them was and would have been, don't do much. Just sit there uh, until the new government begins to show the strains that come to all government, until their coalition begins to show, uh, reveal its stress points. Don't do anything until you know what the, pro- you're not going to be back for eight years. Mm -hmm. And you have no idea now what the problems and issues of eight years from today are going to be. So my advice would be um, focus on recruiting good candidates, uh, doing a lot of policy research, uh, fundraising, of course, uh, and beginning the process of getting ready, but understand that it's it's really, they are going to lose, not you are going to win. And so if 2020 is as bad an election for Republicans as I imagine it will be. Then my advice to them would be just kind of lie low for a couple mm-hmm. of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Democrats will, will have a very messy coalition. They will inherit all kinds of problems. The issues of the day will change. And the time to start thinking about what does it mean to be a Republican after Trump is not 2021. It will be 2024. Now, uh, a question from Rachel what constitutional challenges can we expect from Trump if he feels he may be losing the election? Well, we, we're already seeing, that's a great question. Uh, we're already seeing one of the 
constitutional challenges, which is that Donald Trump has refused to accept subpoenas from the Democratic House of Representatives. Uh, he takes the view that I'll answer questions from the part, the House, my party controls, the U.S. Senate, but I won't answer questions from the House of Representatives where my party does not control. And that that's a new departure. And that um, that case is going to the Supreme Court or and will be decided by the Supreme Court in late June, early July, although the Supreme Court may find a way to wriggle or postpone the question for another year. Um, I think one of the questions that is looming on the horizon massively is the question, can the president pardon himself? Yeah. And this is a question that it's just a may, a, never come up, of course, because we've never had a pre- president who would think of doing such a thing, but it may come up. And it turns out to be a surprisingly hard question um, because uh, the pardon power is very unlimited. On the other hand, it kind of defies the logic of putting a pardon system in the Constitution in the first place, that somebody could use it to defend him, to pardon himself or herself. But so I think that is likely to be very much on the horizon in 2021. Mm-hmm. And we've got another question, one from Dara. Will the evangelicals stick by Trump in the 2020 election? Yes, of course. But let me answer that with the story. So I, I was at the... Um, convention in Cleveland in 2016 and it was uh there's a lot of security at that convention and and just because there, there was a there was fencing which sort of jammed everybody on their way out of the uh, arena very tightly together so I found myself at one point really shoved at very close quarters uh with a man who was we were sort of looking each other in the face and sometimes people just have sympathetic faces and you realize you found someone who's sort of like you and we got into conversation he was exactly my age he was dressed the way I was he was you know we're, we knew people in common. He also had three kids, and uh, so so we're sort of like 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 little sand, like little sardines crammed, and we sort of work our way out together. We have a conversation from the place where we're shoved together to the place where we're debouched and can exit. And um, uh, I asked him what he thought of what he'd seen inside, and um, and he had hated it. And then I'd asked him uh, what he was going to do, and he said, "Well, I'm I'm going to." Vote for the fucker, of course. I always vote Republican. <laughs> said, I said, okay. What's your wife going to do? Said, oh, she hates them. And of course, she'll, she'll she'll vote Democratic. And and your kids? He said, oh, they're gone. They're completely lost. So, to the question, what what's going to happen to the evangelical voters? I mean, the evangelical voters will stick with him. But what will their wives and children do? Um, and especially the children. Um, we that the evangelical movement is very much like many movements in the United States, a movement of people in their fifties and sixties, and we see among evangelicals a lot of movement among people in their 20s and 30s, not only away from Trump, but away from evangelicalism in part because of Trump. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, let me stress, I think is a very sad thing. I, I think it's not a popular view these days. Um, I think people really need religion in their lives and they need organized religion in their lives. That s- Spirituality is fine for good times, but when you're in trouble, you mm. need the st- structures and systems of belief. Um, you need rituals. You need to do things that they don't even necessarily make sense, but you derive meaning from them because you've always done them and people you know have always done them. Mm-hmm. And when religions become – so one of the real harms of the Trump years is as evangelical religion has become so identified with the Republican Party, it, it's lost its young people. And I'll say this as a Jewish person. I, one of the things I'm really worried about is the way that Prime Minister Netanyahu has inserted himself into American politics and made support for Israel. And I blame him much more than I blame anyone else for this. Made support for Israel a partisan issue, which is going to make it harder to maintain 
it's going to make it hard to maintain in, the, in, in what's coming ahead when we move into a less Republican era. You think it's possible that a big chunk of lifelong Republicans will have moved away, will not vote for Trump because they're disillusioned with the promises not kept from the last time around? I think the, the magnitude, and this is a way that the United States is, is, I think, very different from Australia, the magnitude of pain felt by small businesses here. And I don't want to minimize what is going on to Australian small businesses. We are heading for a tsunami of business bankruptcies. Mm. Um, we didn't put a floor under consumers and mm. earners. Mm. And that meant our main program, ironically, I mean, we did, Donald Trump did the most status, least market-oriented thing. When you say, okay, we, we've had this terrible economic shock, how do we keep businesses in, uh, alive? One answer is, well, let the government give money to business, let the government decide which businesses are in trouble and need it. Um, and that requires, that's a Hayek, classic Hayek problem. Or the other is, give everyone a little bit of money. Give everyone four or $5,000. Let them decide what businesses Yep. Need and you know keep, just keep the consumers spending and they will keep the they will keep the businesses alive, um, and we didn't go with that. Everyone else took that approach. That that uh, Australia and Canada and Great Britain, the European countries, they tried to keep people with their uh, having any who had lost their jobs with incomes of 60, 70, 80 percent of what they were making before, mm -hmm. and everybody had to cut back, but. They, they were still able to buy shoes if they needed them or, well, who needed shoes? <laughs> okay, not shoes or pants. Yeah, the pants industry was going to be in trouble no matter what. Um, but, you know, buy groceries buy, and, and keep businesses alive. In the United States, we, we went and said with direct aid to businesses. And, um, and that, of course, favored the most politically connected, mm -hmm. the most powerful, and small businesses very hard. And that's one of the heartlands of the Republican Party. And I think a lot of those people are very disillusioned, yeah. not so much as at spoken promises not kept, but at mm -hmm. an idea that, that I was going to benefit from this. Mm -hmm. And now mm -hmm. instead, I've lost my business. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a question now from Tony. Many U.S. institutions which were seen as the checks and balances on power seem to have failed. How do these institutions get strengthened well the the, I th the institution that has failed worst uh is congress yep. which no longer acts like congress but acts like the two parties in congress mm -hmm. it has not done the kind of oversight um it, it used to be that a congress was able to oversee a president of the same party um that bill clinton and jimmy carter and lyndon johnson didn't feel like oh i got away with stuff because of Demo my fellow democrats were in power um, that, 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 that people in Congress cared about being Congress and the prerogatives of Congress. That's not been true in the Trump era, that, that uh, the Republicans in Congress have acted not like members of Congress, but like members of the Trump political operation. That's the worst failure. And uh, there, I won't offer, there are a lot of remedies in Trumpocalypse about what to do about that. The second worst failure is the Department of Justice, which was very much politicized in the Trump years. Um, not so much as Claire would have as, declared correctly noted really not so much in a kind of Victor Orban way as going after Trump's opponents that wasn't possible but in protecting his friends mm -hmm. I, I wrote in Trumpocracy and I think this really has just described the Trump term that in a modern bureaucratic state the when you corrupt power it's still very difficult to persecute the innocent you corrupt power in order to protect the guilty and the case of General Flynn shows how mm -hmm. how powerful that is but let me direct your attention to one of the institutions that has really succeeded in the Trump mm -hmm. years and really defeated him, and that is the U.S. military. Trump 
put a lot of money in the hands of the U.S. military. He raised the military budget by almost $100 billion over what it got in the last year of Obama. Um, not hugely necessary spending, I think, but um, but there it is. And he thought he was buying their loyalty and that he, he talked about my generals and that the military was a pro-Trump institution. And he thought because he was kind of thuggish, authoritarian person and the military people wore uniforms and saluted that they would be thuggish authoritarian people too. Um, and he believed every kind of Vietnam protesters stereotypes about the military, only he thought those stereotypes were good, not bad. And he's been startled to discover how the military has made it very clear, leave us out of this. We're not mm. acting like we're bodyguard. Mm. And an early warning side of trouble was when he tried to get the military to do um, a parade. He went to France in the summer of 2014, sorry, 2017, saw the Bastille Day parade, loved it, decided he needed one of these. Mm -hmm. And he never understood, the French have a Bastille Day parade, that that is a, a legacy of French military humiliation um, yeah. in 1871, and even more in 1945. And it's a, France is back, we are a power to deal with, we put it on the streets of Paris because we have something to prove. Mm -hmm. so the US military has nothing to prove. And meanwhile, <laughs> U.S. soldiers are now sailors, air, airmen, air people. They're very high-paid professionals, and they have better things to do with their time mm. than relearn the 19th century skill of walking in a straight line, uh, which was very useful to armies in the days of the bayonet, but is not a tremendously useful skill today. And so once you leave West Point, you never – they don't parade. They just, they just don't do it. It's a giant waste of time. Everybody has to go through exercises. Mm. Um they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to deal with the grief from the city of Washington, the damage to roads and pipes. They just they just didn't want to do it. And, and finally, they didn't want to be used. So they kept trying to find ways to not do it. And they were successful. And, and again and again, they signaled to him, do not use this as a political tool. And that has come to this extraordinary culmination in the past couple of weeks, mm -hmm. where the serving chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, past chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Secretary Mattis have said, we are not on board for a policy of use of military force in American cities for racial repression against peaceful protesters. Leave us out of this. And that's mm -hmm. been a remarkable thing since the 1st of June. Mm. And there was General Mattis's, was it a letter or a piece that he wrote? Uh, it was an, uh, an op-ed he wrote for The Atlantic. Yeah. But Mattis has been signaling for a long time his unhappiness. I, I quote him in um, Trumpocalypse, a speech he gave in 2018, where Donald Trump had turned on him and attacked him and mocked him and uh, described him as an overrated general. In fact, the most overrated general. And Mattis had point then dug out that Mer he, Trump had also described Meryl Streep as the world's most overrated actress. <laughs> and that's it. So I suppose I'm the Meryl Streep of generals. That feels pretty good. <laughs> and then he had some more zingers and before finally concluding, I think the only member of our military that, whom Donald Trump does not regard as overrated is Colonel Sanders. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Think Inc. podcast. For more, head to thinkinc.org for the full showcase of what we have on offer. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Your support allows us to keep doing what we do, and we appreciate each and every one of you. See you next time.